According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 17. We left off in our last session with the Day of Atonement and a pretty comprehensive development out of Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to follow that up tonight. This is uh, day 55 in the through the Bible calendar, and uh, the chapters we need to cover this hour include Leviticus 17, 18, and 19. So, Lord willing and rapture pending, that's the uh, that's the plan for tonight. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time in the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight just thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness day by day, moment by moment. This has been uh, an amazing day, Father. We want to thank you for the new uh, the baby and the safe arrival. We want to thank you for all of your faithfulness and the answered prayers. Father, we continue to lift up uh, everything before you for your grace and your mercy. And we thank you for tonight as the Word of God goes forth that we can study to show ourselves approved. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So following the uh, Day of Atonement material, additional warnings are given regarding the sacred nature of blood. And so we cross over from chapter 16 into chapter 17 and we're going to see some more uh, additional admonishments related to the seriousness of, uh, of, of blood and what does blood represent and why does God make a big deal out of blood. Okay, So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel. And say to them, this is what the Lord has commanded, saying, any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or who slaughters it outside the camp, and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. All right, so... um, this is uh, how the, the chapter starts. All right? It's dealing with um, alternative forms of worship. It's dealing with, not, not talking about killing an animal for dinner. It's talking about the ritual slaughtering of an animal and uh, having a, a separate uh, sacrificial system on the side. Uh, moonlighting, if you will, apart from the Levitical system and trying to do something outside the camp on a ritual basis. That God says that is out of bounds. Uh, if there is an animal that's killed on a ritual basis, it's going to be right here uh, with the Levitical priesthood and, and the blood is going to be accounted for by the priests and the Levites that are going to dispose upon uh, dispose of the blood appropriately. Otherwise there's a thing called blood guiltiness that gets assigned and it's to be reckoned to that man. He has shed blood and that man should be cut off from among his people. And again, this is where the uh, omniscient, omnipresent uh, uh, God of the universe, he sees what you're doing even when you think you're extra sneaky and you're outside the camp and you're doing it at some hour of the day or night that no one's watching. God's watching and uh, and he's the one that reckons the blood guiltiness. He's the one also, by the way, that does the cutting off as we studied in the idiom of, of Karath and the cutting off uh, from his people. 
Verse 5 goes on to say, the reason is so that the sons of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they were sacrificing in the open field, that they may bring them in to the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting to the priest and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. The priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting and offer up the fat in smoke as a soothing aroma to the Lord. See, the things that belong to God, all fat belongs to the Lord. The things that belong to the Lord have to be given to the Lord, and it's the, the, the priesthood that observes these things and, and oversees them all. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. And this is what really is going on. It's the idolatry and then the, the fornication and the other entertainment that goes along with that kind of idolatry in, uh, in the issues here. And if you ever study Greek mythology, you know what the satyrs were all about. The, uh, the goat idols or the goat demons. Then you understand it's, uh, it's the wanton debauchery of, uh, of the, the things there. So um, God says none of that. You shall have no other gods before me is the first commandment. And, uh, and this gets placed here in the Levit- Levitical code for this reason. This shall be a permanent statute to them throughout their generations. Um, very specifically it talks about this. Let's see. All animal sacrifices must be brought to the tabernacle so that the blood can be poured out and sprinkled uh, and the fat can be given to the Lord. Remember, all fat belongs to the Lord. No other location inside the camp or outside the camp is acceptable for animal sacrifice. The regulation was a preventative measure against idolatrous practices, as we saw there. Verse 5, also verse 7. The idea of blood guiltiness and the idea of these demons that are being honored in the, uh, in the evil ritual. The Lord declared that He was bringing their goat demon worship to an end. And really, He does speak of it as if it was well known that it was happening, that this was a practice that, that they knew they were doing and everybody knew they were doing, and if there were you know, folks turning a blind eye to it, it's time to stop turning the blind eye. When it says, they shall no longer, it's been clear that this has been going on for some time. We have other clues of this as well, like in Joshua 24, you know, the, the famous choose you this day whom you will serve uh, soliloquy speech that, that uh, Jer- uh, Joshua gave. But it's curious when he has the lead into this, he says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. You know, you understand the long, uh, the long-standing idolatry that had taken place. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river. That would have been the Euphrates. That would have been pre-call of Abraham, right? And called out from Ur of the Chaldees and the 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 moon god that that the Terah worshipped and and the whole family there. And then, and so there's there's an aspect of that that they're still clinging to. Can you imagine? And then the gods that they served in Egypt. And they, they haven't put them away yet. They've carried them with them. And remember, when you're reading from Joshua 24, you're not just reading about you know, the, the events surrounding the Exodus. You're talking about the next generation. 
Because it's the they've gone through the Exodus, they've had the the Exodus generation has died, the wilderness generation has has now assumed the their generational accountability. They've gone in to conquer the land. They've had the 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 different uh, uh, campaigns that they had in the south and in the north, and then they begin to distribute the the land grant. And then this is this is towards the this is the end of the book of Joshua, shortly before Joshua's life, and he says you got to put these idols away. And to me it's just staggering that, uh, that they've been carrying those idols for as long as they have. And uh, as our text tonight tells us, beyond all that, beyond the, the Babylonian gods and beyond the Egyptian gods uh, is this, uh, this goat demon thing that they were, that they were worshiping. So um, put them away is what Joshua told them in verse uh, Joshua 24, 14. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. And uh, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living, uh, that, would, that would then even provide a third option. So the beyond the river gods, or the Canaanite gods, or the Egyptian gods, or these goat demons, you know, um, <laughs> if you're going to be an idolater, at least pick a pantheon and be consistent, right? I mean, goodness, you can't have the pick and choose between these different pantheons. And that's the introduction, that, that's what precedes the but, as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh, we will serve the Lord. And um, just a, a great context for that, that we have on our refrigerators or our doormats or other things, and uh, don't pay attention to the larger context. All right, the sa'ir is the Hebrew expression, the Hebrew term for the satyr, the goat demon. Uh, and if you want more on that, um, you find it in Isaiah also, Second uh, Chronicles eleven fifteen. He set up priests of his own for high places for the satyrs and for the calves, which he had made. And this ta- is talking about the idolatry of uh, of Jeroboam. And uh, you know, you thought Aaron was bad enough with a golden calf. Jeroboam said, "I'll see your golden calf and I'll raise you." <laughs> so he had two golden calves. And as if that's not enough, he threw some goat demons in on top of that, the satyrs and, and all of that. And then Isaiah 13, this is a powerful uh, passage that deals with the fall of Babylon in an eschatological sense and uh, talking about the desert creatures will lie down there, their house will be full of owls, ostriches will live there, the shaggy goats will frolic there, hyenas will howl in their fortified towers and jackals in their luxurious palaces. So yeah, this is uh, the fall of Babylon is what leads to this locality becoming a, a haunt, becoming an absolute haunt after the fall. And then thirty four fourteen, the desert creatures will meet with the wolves. The hairy goat also will cry to its kind. That's the Sapnir. Yes, the night monster will settle there. I think that's the Lilith, and uh, will find herself. A resting place. So, yeah, when you when you're dealing with passages like that, you know that you've plunged into some of the depths of angelic conflict and demonism and different things, and so you realize that this uh, admonition that's happening here about the the uh, the reverence before the Lord and the careful uh, uh, treatment uh, centered on blood, uh, we understand why it has the emphasis that it has. All right, 
We left off with verse 7. Verse 8 says, You shall say to them, Any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man also shall be cut off from his people. Okay? And if that sounds like it's you know, guilty until proven innocent, it, it kind of is. I mean, it's just, this is how God said it needs to happen. If you, if you aren't hiding anything, why aren't you bringing it to the tabernacle? I mean, there's no reason not to uh, bring your sacrifice to the, to the tabernacle. If you want to offer a burnt offering or a grain offering or a sin offering, whatever you want to do, just do it in the right way at the right place. And for Israel, that is the tabernacle where God dwells. Also any man from the house of Israel, from any alien who sojourns among them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. And so there are pagan practices that include uh, blood consumption and, and uh, you know, cannibalism and other, other you know, features of, of consuming human uh, material. It's just horrendous. But here's the explanation that's given. It says in verse 11, for the soul of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The nephesh of the basar is in the dam. Okay? The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Since, since the, the Levitical worship or any worship before the Father is centered on soul worship, the reality of our souls communing with God, the whole idea of worship centers on the soul. And this is why blood becomes the, 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 uh, the medium of exchange or it becomes the, the venue to communicate that because blood is what is the, the representation of the soul itself. So it is the blood by reason of the life that is the soul that makes atonement. And, and this is nothing new. This, was, this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and, and why fig leaves didn't cut it. Why it was that they had to be clothed with animal skins because it required the shedding of blood in order to cover for the nakedness of their sin. So I said to the sons of Israel, no person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. And it's curious when uh, much of the culture of this continent, when, the, when Christianity arrived, was centered on cannibalism and blood consumption and different things. And, and uh, um, Crazy Horse had this marvelous habit of, not marvelous, disgusting habit. His, uh, he, he, uh, his, his biggest thrill was to not only kill his victim, but be able to rip out the beating heart and eat it while it was still beating. That was, uh, to him, that was the mark of his, of his glory. So obviously we want to build a monument to, to that individual. And, uh, <laughs> oh, don't get me going on that. All right. So when any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting... So you notice this is, a, this is applicable to everybody. If you're, if you're not Jewish, if, you don't, if you're not from here, you're still going to abide by the expectations of God's law while you're here. During the time of your sojourn, this is the law that you're subject to because this is the law of God. This is the Torah of God and you're living among the people of God. If you're hunting and you catch a beast or a bird which may be eaten, that's great. Pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. Cover it with the earth. Okay, and that's, there's, there's doctrine in that. For as the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, you're not to eat the blood of any flesh. For the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. 
When any person eats an animal which dies or is torn by a beast, whether he is a native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and remain unclean until evening. Then he will become clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, he shall bear his guilt. All right, so that gets us through chapter 17. As the Lord emphasizes the importance of not eating the blood. This was communicated back in Genesis 9 when they got off the ark in the post-flood world. Their diet was extended. Humanity was given a larger diet range after the flood. Before the flood, everything was, was plant-based only, right? And uh, after, the, after the flood, animals were added to the human diet. I realize there's people today, there's people in this church that love the, the plant-based diet approach to, uh, to what they're doing, you know? And I just say, well, God bless you, you know, enjoy uh, you're making your BIOS life decisions and you're free to do that. But I'm also free to make my BIOS life decisions and it includes a lot of meat, okay? And, and so mine is mine and yours is yours and God bless you, okay? Uh, as far as that goes. But when I eat meat, I don't eat it with the blood. <laughs> I cook my meat. All right. Also, uh, we've had this uh, in, back in Leviticus chapter 3. Don't eat fat, don't eat blood. That was Leviticus 3.17, a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. And then in chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, you're not to eat any blood, either of bird or animal, in any of your dwellings. Any person who eats blood, even that person, shall be cut off from his people. So this, this is given repeatedly. All right, which gets us to chapter 18 where probably the bulk of our time will be spent tonight. God's laws for personal holiness include His stipulations concerning sexual activity. His stipulations concerning sexual activity. And this whole chapter is all about sex. So, But it's all about marriage is what it's about. And so once we understand the link and the connection there, I think a lot of other things basically sort themselves out to where they become no-brainers in different ways. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. This comes up again and again and again. And we're going to see this in chapter 18, chapter 19. This actually becomes a a phrase, an expression that gets a, a hyper concentrated usage in this portion of Leviticus. I am the Lord your God. Just in case you've forgotten. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived. Okay, that was then. That's not you. That's those guys. Nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. So Egypt is Egypt, Canaan is Canaan, and there's a reason why you were brought out of Egypt. There's a reason why you're being brought into Canaan, and all of those Canaanites are going away. It's not going to be the land of Canaan after they're gone. It's going to be the land of Israel because it's the land God's giving to you. And in the land of Israel, the God of Israel expects the people of Israel to to be a holy people because God is holy. So just because other nations are doing something doesn't make it right. That is so important. And even, uh, you know, even within... Christian circles and so forth. Different families have different standards and different expectations. And I remember growing up, uh, all kinds of frustration because uh, because 
our family was probably the strictest in the entire church, and I had friends that could do things that we weren't allowed to do. And I must have heard it a hundred times if I heard it once. Uh, you know, just because uh, whatever other family is doing this doesn't mean you're doing it. You're not in that family. Was you know what's your what's your last name? <laughs> what's the name on your birth certificate? What, what family are you in? You know, that's not your last name. That's not your family. That's not what our family does. Okay, and uh, see, we realize that th- these are the expectations for for who you are and where you are, and this is what it is. So, you shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments, keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. In case you've forgotten, you're going to hear this again and again and again. I am the Lord your God. So I I love the fact that all of these laws, everything that we see, especially in this chapter where you have all the the sex stuff, all of these laws that we're seeing are, are... inseparable. They're totally linked to the person of who God is. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. I am the Lord, your God. And so if you start to think that, well, maybe some of these customs, some of these practices, some of these, you know, um, over time, can't we just loosen up some of these? Can't we just uh, you know, be more permissive. Can't we update our morals and our ethics? I mean, come on, this is the this is the 21st century after all. We don't have to be all primitive and biblical about different things. Okay, the idea that that standards change over time—that's a human idea, because God doesn't change over time. God is the I am. He always has been the I am. He still is the I am. He always will be the I am. And it's his nature of who he is that keeps these uh, standards uh, grounded and unchanging. So keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live. If he does them, I am the Lord. So that's our first five verses there. Just because the other nations do something doesn't make it right. Israel was to be obedient to the absolute standards of the righteousness of God. Adherence to God's laws for sexual morality results in continued life, but defiance of God's laws for sexual morality defiles a land and results in divine judgment. And we're going to see this. These principles form bookends of the entire unit that we're looking at here. So we have verse 5 at the top of the, at the, top of the narrative. And in verse 5 it says, you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. So this is the recipe for life, right? This is the recipe for not dying the sin unto death or for not, uh, you, you can think of it to um, the uh, Jesus Christ said, I've come that they may have life and may have it in abundance, okay? So this is the life that is full, the life that has meaning, the life that is significant in the eyes of the Lord, Uh, that which is life indeed, we might say, by which a man may live. There's a lot of people that have physical life, but they're not really living, not as God would have them live under the, uh, the expectations of his righteousness. So that's at the top. Do this and you may live. Then at the very bottom, when we get to verses 24 through 30, we're going to see if you, if you aren't living in conformity to God's standard, then you are defiling yourselves and you are defiling your, your land. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for if by all these things, for by all these things, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. 
So there's the reason why when, when God brought you out of Egypt, it's this land of Canaan, this promised land is, is going to be yours because it's not theirs anymore. God has already decreed their removal. And because they've been defiled, their land has become defiled. We'll get to more detail on that uh, before we're done tonight, but um, just want to spotlight it there before we start talking about the specifics. Okay? People can be defiled, territory can be defiled. This is your personal pollution uh, you know, problem, and, and the land gets polluted, see, by virtue of the sexual immorality of the culture. So starting in verses 6 through 21 then, we have um, really the first significant section of uh, sexual ordinances that are given in Leviticus uh, detailing the boundaries for sexual activity. The first section of sexual ordinances details boundaries for sexual activity. And it's going to take us from verse 6 all the way down through verse 21. Keep in mind, before we've gotten here, we've already dealt with a couple of issues. We've already had adultery referenced in the the Decalogue in the Ten Commandments. Extramarital sexual activity was previously prohibited in the Decalogue. That was Exodus 20 and verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. I mean, short and sweet, and there you have it, okay? That's already off the table as far as Leviticus 21 is concerned, although it will get mentioned later on. Non-marital sexual activity likewise was previously prohibited. So, uh, so far in our study of the law, we've already dealt with extramarital and non-marital. What some people call premarital, but that's just a dodge, okay? Premarital is is non-marital. Non-marital sexual activity likewise was previously prohibited and resulted in marriage. You remember that? There were so many things in our Mosaic law that if you violated it, the penalty was death. The consequence it was stoning or it was some other form of capital punishment that if you broke this law, the punishment was death. Well, the punishment for the non-marital sexual activity was marriage without possibility of parole or divorce, I mean. The, the, the po- lifelong marriage with no option for divorce. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he still has to pay the money equal to the dowry for virgins. The man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her, and he cannot divorce her all his days. All right, so we've handled um, extramarital, we've handled non-marital. So as we return to Leviticus 18 then, what we're dealing with in verses 6 and following, the sexual boundaries then that this chapter presents are actually marital boundaries. Because we've already taken extramarital and non-marital off the table. This is centered on the marital boundaries for approved sexual activity what God has designed it for. In other words, it's called the marriage bed for a reason. It is the act of marriage. It, is, it has no other appropriate venue than man and woman in marriage, as we'll see here. 
The basic principle is don't marry and have sex with family members. <laughs> There's a rule of thumb for you. Okay? It's, it's like the rule of thumb we had for clean versus unclean animals, right? Does it split the hoof? Does it chew the cud? You know, we, we have these rules of thumb. Okay? The rule of thumb for sex is very simple. Marriage. Okay? Beyond that, if you, if you want to get the, the fine print, okay, here are the people you can't marry. And because these are the people you can't marry, because you can't marry them, you can't have sex with them. But it comes down to the fact is you're not married to them. And so these boundaries aren't just sexual boundaries, they're technically, I mean, fundamentally they're marital boundaries. If you, if you phrase it in this way, if you cast the, uh, the, the chapter in this, in this light. So Leviticus 18.6, none of you shall approach any blood relative to, of his to uncover nakedness, I am the Lord. All right, so that's the rule of thumb. Okay? None of you shall approach, enter into this kind of a, a relationship. Uh, and blood relative, that's going to be huge. Okay? This is how families are defined. Families are defined by the blood connections between them, the life connections between them, the soul connections between them. The blood relative. And, and we're going to have all the, the degrees spelled out in this, in this uh, legislation, in this chapter. So, no, none of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. Okay, here's the idiom. Uncovering nakedness. It's not just taking off clothes and looking at something. It's the, this is the expression that refers to anything sexual. Uh, it's the idiom for sexual activity. Okay? And it's kept in this general expression. Later on there'll be a slight adjustment when it starts talking about other things beyond marital relations. Uh, and we'll get that before the end of the hour. But the usual term that's used from top to bottom in this chapter is to uncover nakedness. And if that's, if that's not blunt enough for you, just say, you know, get married and have sex. Okay? Not if, they're, not if you're related to them. Maybe that's a no-brainer. But then again he adds, I am the Lord. Just in case you forgot, I am the Lord. It comes up repeatedly throughout this chapter. So, you really could end the chapter there unless you wanted to spell it out. <laughs> God obviously wanted to spell it out. So he starts listing examples. And some of these examples actually have previously been observed in the Bible, in Genesis specifically. We're going to see several of these that we're going to study tonight that are violations of Mosaic law. And we can see Abraham did them or, or uh, Jacob did them. And, or we have other examples of this. How come it was not wrong before, but it's wrong now? Because God said so, it's wrong now, that's why. <laughs> okay? And more than just you know, divine fiat, but there's specific reasons why. There's a difference between the patriarchal age and the, the covenant people as a nation. And as a nation, um, the things that are banned are, are not only personally destructive, but they're culturally destructive. They wreak havoc on a clan and a tribe and a nation. So uh, God says, don't do it. All right, starting with your sister. Oh, no, no, not starting with your sister. Starting with uh, your mother. Verse 7 is your mother. Do not marry and do not have sex with your mother. You think, does that need to be said? Apparently. 
It says right here, and we have examples like in the New Testament with the man of Corinth. This was, this was something he was violating. Okay, He had his father's wife. So it says in verse 7, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, that is, the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. Okay? And so there you go. Start with that. <laughs> okay? And you have to wonder at some point, I suspect this chapter has become the, um, the target list for every satanic perversion out there, whereby they, they have this little checklist of what, how many of these have they turned and twisted into becoming socially acceptable in our culture today? You know, how many of these have political action committees behind them? Right? Well, so far the, the mother incest does not yet have a, um, I don't think, has a, uh, a parade or a, 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 you know, a celebration month or anything like that. But some of these do. All right. But obviously, your mother, that's your mother. Okay? And she's married to your father, because he hadn't figured that out yet. Okay? And so, her nakedness is actually proprietary. I want you to notice too how many expressions in this chapter speak of ownership. Speak of who is who owns that nakedness, who's entitled to that nakedness. Okay? Because it's not you. It's it, it, your mother's nakedness belongs to your father. And his nakedness belongs to her. Okay? Because we gotta we gotta take both of these both directions for sons to obey and for daughters to obey. All right, so uh, don't marry and have sex with your mother, okay? Because obviously she's already married and that's just disgusting. Number two, don't marry and have sex with your stepmother. See, maybe you think it's, this is a way to get around verse 7 is, well, what about if it's just my father's wife and she's not my biological mother? Is that okay? No. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, that is, the nakedness of your mother. Okay, that's verse 7. Then verse 8. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, it is your father's nakedness. So there's a distinction between verse 7 and verse 8, and and quite likely too, uh, this is what uh, uh, Reuben was guilty of, uh, if you have polygamy in the picture, then you have multiple wives, and then it's possible that a son then uh, of a different wife uh, may, you know, decide to fornicate with. She's not his mom, so what's wrong with that? Okay, well, because she's married to your father, that's what's wrong with that. And it's about the the, and she is a blood relative, even though she was married in. How does marriage create a blood relative? Do you ask? Glad you asked. Um. It's actually very biblical the way that it looks at these things. When you are sharing the bodily fluids, um, I may save this for a later night. Let me hold off on that. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to stick with Leviticus 18 for tonight. But yes, by marriage, by marriage she's considered a blood relative by virtue of the the one flesh relationship in marriage. All right, so your mother, your stepmother. Again, it is your father's nakedness. Proprietary, he owns it. That's his. Verse 9, the nakedness of your sister. Either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. 
So yeah, there's a lot of ways you can have a uh, brother-sister, a sibling relationship that may not be full uh, brother-sister because uh, again, a lot of cases with concubines or uh, polygamy or other cases whereby uh, you have the same father but different mothers. So uh, rule number three, don't marry and have sex with your sister, your stepsister, or your half-sister. And that's not only verse 9 but also uh, verse 11. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, born to your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness. And if you try to be like Abraham and say, oh, you know, she's not my sister, she's my wife, and, you know, um, trying to to weasel out of it, it's not going to work. Because God knows the truth. All right. Now, this this gets a lot of uh, attention. A lot of critics will point to this. A lot of critics... um, really not related to Leviticus itself, but with respect to um, Cain and Abel, with respect to uh, the after the flood with Ham, Shem, and Japheth when they started to have children. In that first generation, who else could they marry besides their sisters? I mean, obviously. So Cain and Abel, they married their sisters. And the children of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, they married their sisters. Although in that case, they would have had other you know, non-sisters they could have married because there was the other brothers. But be that as it may. My suspicion is they did marry their sisters. That the Hemetic line stayed Hemetic, the Semitic line stayed Semitic, the the uh, Japhetic line stayed Japhetic at least in those initial generations before they started crossing the uh, the bloodlines on that. So sometimes they point to this and say, well then, if, uh, if marrying your sister is wrong, then you know, Cain and Abel were wrong. Or then uh, Abraham was wrong because Sarah was his half-sister. Okay? And uh, beyond the rightness or the wrongness of it, it was pre-Mosaic law, so Abraham was not violating Mosaic law. When they were founded as a nation, these laws are put into effect as a nation going into the land. And so whatever the patriarchs did or whatever happened in the antediluvian world, um, this is not that. This is not the patriarchal age, this is the age of Israel and their founding as a nation. All right, don't marry and have sex with your granddaughter. That's verse 10. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for their nakedness is yours. And that's an interesting way to express that um, because fundamentally, they, they wouldn't be here without your nakedness, right? They, they, they came from your loins. They are your descendants. And uh, your, 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 your children and grandchildren um, are really extensions of you. And so you can't have a more inappropriate, um, you know, you can't marry a blood relation and they are the, the, the closest blood relation to you because they came from you in that sense. Their nakedness is yours. It is from you. Okay. Yeah, they are your they are your nakedness. It's not that their nakedness belongs to you. The nakedness that belongs to you is your spouse, is your wife. That's whose nakedness belongs to you, and your nakedness belongs to her. But they are, literally, they are your nakedness. They are here because of what you were doing when you were naked. All right. How many more of these do we have? Um, 
granddaughter. All right. Your aunt. Don't marry and have sex with your aunt. Now we start to get into some of these uh, tangents or these side relationships. So it's no longer directly vertical in terms of a mother or a daughter or a granddaughter, but now we're starting to go one degree off with a sister of your father. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, for she is your father's blood relative. And again, we're talking about the extended connections between not just families, but clans and tribes and ultimately the nation itself. And so the nakedness of your father's sister, for she is your father's blood relative. And, and really it's just a generation removed from your own sister. It's, uh, it's, it's the blood relationship and it's inappropriate. It's not suitable for God's design in marriage and so it's not suitable for God's design for sex. You shall not unco- Verse 13 says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister for she is your mother's blood relative. So either way you want to go, paternal or maternal, the, uh, the aunts are off limits. Okay? Or the uncles, as the case may be, if, if you're a girl trying to apply this, uh, this principle. Verse 14, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. And so, um, yeah, so this includes your natural aunts and your aunt-in-law uh, if you will, because she is, uh, her nakedness belongs to your uncle and uh, she is a blood relation. There, uh, the violation on this would have been Amram and Jochebed, that, uh, Am- the parents of Moses, that Amram actually married his aunt. Jochebed was, uh, was his father's sister. Well, like I say, we can find biblical viola- uh, violations of this uh, but these violations we're finding all precede when this was given as a, as a command. Daughter-in-law. Don't marry and have sex with your daughter-in-law or your sister-in-law. I mean, the phrase in-law should be a clue. They're married to other people. They're married to your son. They're married to your brother. So you shall not uncover the nakedness. Let's see, we're in verse 15. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. That's the only way you can get a daughter-in-law. <laughs> okay? Um, she is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. So all of these are out of bounds and it's and, and beyond... Um, you know, people want to uh, talk about, well, what about the genetics and what about, and, and, and I, it just bugs me because they talk about, well, in the patriarchal age, it was closer to Adam and Eve and, and, and in, with Cain and Abel, you know, sin hadn't ravaged as much yet. So the genetics weren't quite as, as corrupted in, uh, in the earlier years. But uh, by the time we uh, get to the Mosaic era, uh, now the, the genes have, have had enough time to be corrupted and now we've got to worry about uh, mutations, or now we need to worry about um, whatever inbreeding. We got to worry about. Uh, we don't want Israel didn't want their kids looking like the, you know, the British royal family or whatever. These some of these, some of these lines have been so inbred for 500 years and longer. It's just crazy. All right. Didn't mean to say that. I just watched a video yesterday that was talking about Stephen Crowder was talking about the. Uh, the inbreeding of 
English nobility, or all, really all European nobility. All right, let me get back to the, this stuff. Um, so, your daughter-in-law, okay? She's married to your son. She's married to your son. She's already a blood relation. She's already, and remember, the whole point is, especially as God is crafting the nation of Israel, this is the covenant nation, and each of these tribes has their inheritance, has their allotment, their land grant, and all of these rights of inheritance are going through the father to the, to the, to the heirs that, that are being produced. And, you know, you've already produced that son, and that son already has the uh, the the uh, inheritance that he's entitled to by being your son, and he already has the wife that he was given. In fact, you arranged that wife for him before he married that girl. <laughs> okay, you and her father already exchanged the the uh, the contract and the and the the gifts and everything. And the idea, okay, that that and it doesn't even say that the son is dead yet or whatever. Um, but the idea, you've already, you've already passed that legacy, you've already passed that inheritance to that next generation. What are you attempting to do now by marrying her? I mean, honestly, you're not attempting anything by marrying her. You just want to have sex with her is what it comes down to. And, and that's out of bounds. It's totally out of bounds and it's totally in defiance of what marriage is designed to be doing, okay? Where a man will leave his father and mother, will cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And that God has function- he designed humanity to function this way. This is the privilege we have that angels don't have. They don't marry and aren't given in marriage. But it's humanity that gets to beget and be begotten. And we have the begetter and the begotten one. And this is our glory to be able to image God through the process of a begetter and a begotten one. And so... Yeah, just the idea of perverting that by some bizarre thing with your mother or some bizarre thing with your daughter-in-law or some bizarre thing with a granddaughter. Any of those things are just flagrant um, flagrant rejections of God's design for marriage and family. So, don't marry and have sex with your daughter-in-law or your sister-in-law. Number seven, don't have polygamous marriage and have sex with mothers and their daughters, or mothers and their granddaughters, or mothers and their daughters and their granddaughters, I guess you might say. All right, verse 17. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. So, okay, now there are cases in which uh, polygamy was practiced, and there are cases even, with, we'll see later, with a leveret marriage where polygamy was in fact commanded if, uh, if the Leveret brother was already married, he still had to make uh, his, his duties clear to his deceased brother. Um, well, that's a different issue, and we'll get into that later. But for this chapter, though, there, there is polygamy, and if you do become a polygamist and you find yourself married to more than one woman, uh, they can't be sisters, they can't be mother and daughter, they can't be mother, a grandmother and, and granddaughter, or anything of the sort. So you shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. Nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. It is lewdness. And so this is, uh, this is where, uh, remember I said when you get married, this becomes a blood relative issue. And so the idea of having two women who are blood relations amongst themselves, and then you marry both of them, 
ends up creating this problem. And God says, don't do it. It is lewdness. So that's a different issue. On top of everything else, we have a new expression that's found here, zama, okay? Or wickedness. You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. All right, so don't have polygamous marriage and have sex with sisters. Now Jacob violated this obviously because he was tricked into marrying Leah when, he, when the one he wanted to marry was Rachel. And then he, insisting on having his own way and not willing to accept loss and not willing to accept the overruling will of God. It was really God's grace that was giving him his right woman. It was God's grace that was preserving the line of Christ. The line of Christ comes through Leah. But he wouldn't, uh, wouldn't accept that. So he ends up having two sisters and then a couple of other handmaidens. Out of bounds under Mosaic law. Even though Israel did it, nobody in the nation of Israel will be allowed to do it. It, is, it violates God's standard of holiness. There's even a stipulation where your wife is off limits. Don't have sex with your wife during her menstrual impurity. All right. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. Don't ever have sex with your neighbor's wife. Okay? Reminder of the seventh commandment. So uh, Exodus 20 and verse 14, and it's repeated here in verse 20, Leviticus 18.20. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. Now we start to see uh, an element, we had uh, the introduction of that term um, lewdness, now we have the defilement gets introduced here. Those other relationships were just inappropriate from the get-go, just wrong. You don't marry that person, you don't have sex, and because you don't marry that person, you don't have sex with that person. But here, Adultery is, uh, is uh, its own category of fornication, and it is a defiling category. It is a defiling category. All right, so those are the ten parameters for marital boundaries. One through ten. We get past those and we start getting into some other perversions. Verse 21. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. And sadly, uh, as kind of a, a afterword to the rest of these uh, fornication issues, is what happens when babies result from this uh, inappropriate uh, marital activity. The, the offering of the offspring to Molech, the child sacrifice of a, of a, of a newborn child to Molech, Child sacrifice to Molech was the pagan method for discarding the consequences and continuing in the sexual debauchery. And, uh, you know, some of the, the most glorious things, uh, obviously God designed marriage for our blessing and marriage is awesome and, and the, uh, the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage is unlike anything else the, the, the world could imagine. And so God has designed that and then God blesses that with the children that come along, the consequences of the marital blessings. And uh, the children come along and that's additional blessing related to different things. And are they in the way? Are they obstacles? Are they baggage? Are they just, 
you know, something you want to get rid of because they're tying you down and keeping you from having fun and whatever else. That's the Moloch mental attitude, okay? And God calls it evil. So discarding the consequences and continuing in sexual debauchery. And of course, our world is good at, good at this. The world has the whole philosophy of no consequences. Do what you want, have fun, no consequences. If we can mitigate the consequences, then that means you can do it even more and, uh, and all the rest. But never mind the fact that even... Uh, I mean, there's the spiritual defilement that takes place that there's never been a, a, a condom yet that can cover that related to uh, the spiritual defilement. Anyway, there's more than just Leviticus 18 there. Uh, there's additional aspects on child sacrifice in Leviticus 20, so we'll get to that tomorrow. Uh, Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 18. I mean, it's all throughout the Old Testament. Second Kings 3. There were even uh, kings of Judah that were doing this. And kings of Judah, who are the line of Christ, by the way, sacrificing their children. What, a, what an attack on uh, the seed of the woman and the, and the seed of David and, and the hope of our eternal life by getting the Davidic kings to, uh, to follow after the Jezebel example of the northern kingdom there. All right. Now there's a follow-up. Okay, so we have the 10 boundaries for uh, marital sexual uh, prohibitions and then the, uh, the uh, child sacrifice serves as the appendix to that. We're going to go past the marital relationships and start and there's, uh, addressing two additional items that don't produce children and uh, aren't marital considerations, but they are sexual perversions. And so they get set apart and they're listed in this way. So point five, the follow-up to the boundaries for marital sexual relations is a section on other gross sexual activities. And the Bible calls them abominations and perversions. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Now you notice that it, even, the, even the, the vocabulary changes. It doesn't say like, you know, to approach a woman is to uncover her nakedness. That's the you know, uh, even the, the imagery of, of marriage, the imagery of an engagement, the imagery of a, of a, uh, of a marriage contract, it, all of that's just gone. We're just laying down and, and, and committing an activity. Lying with a male as one lies with a female, it is an abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. So verses 22 and 23 are talking about non-marital, non-child producing um, sexual perversions. Homosexual activity is an abomination. Hebrew is the toknevah, a disgusting thing, something that God pushes as far away as his arms can push. Um, Whereas the thing that he embraces, that which is dear to him, he draws close. That which is an abomination to him, he pushes away. So a toknevah is a disgusting thing, an abomination used 117 times in the Old Testament and uh, quite frequently in, in uh, and not only in the homosexual uh, contrast, there's a whole lot of other things that are also called tokneva as well. Um, but nowadays you're, you're a hater if you call it an abomination. And uh, if you call it what God calls it, then you might be up in, in Canada at least, you can be prosecuted. You can have other things um, wouldn't surprise me if it comes to our country sometime soon. 
All right. There are additional passages condemning homosexual activity, by the way. It's not only in Leviticus. Uh, I've had people think that if they can get rid of Leviticus, then woohoo, the sky is the limit. Not so fast, okay? Genesis 19, the whole Sodom and Gomorrah episode, they try to explain that away. That's a hospitality failure. No, it's not. Come on. And uh, Leviticus 20, uh, two chapters after this one. The book of Judges, Judges 19, Romans 1, 26 and 27. That one gets so explicit, not only does it condemn the male homosexual activity, it also addresses lesbianism in, uh, in pretty much a unique place in the, in the Bible. Then uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. So, and I think there's even a Timothy reference too related to this. It is not biblically appropriate. Bestiality is a perversion uh, called a tevil, a confusion, a perversion. Additional Bible passages condemning bestiality include Exodus twenty-two nineteen, 19, uh, Le- Leviticus 20, verses 15 to 16, and uh, Deuteronomy 27, 21. By the way, everything we're doing tonight, we're going to do it again tomorrow night because we get into chapter 20, okay? And chapter 20 is a follow-up to this chapter. Yikes, I'm going to run out of time. Beyond the personal defilements, homosexuality and bestiality generate national and territorial defilements. Such national and territorial defilements over time result in land vomiting. Land vomiting. So, do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. Now specifically, the, these things in the immediate context of verse 24 is the, the most recent two, the homosexuality and the bestiality. However, I don't want to limit it to just those two because uh, the uh, neighbor's wife there was also called defiling. And so because of that vocabulary of defiling, when it says do not defile yourselves by any of these things, I would take it all the way to the top of the list and say any, any flavor of, of fornication that's listed in this chapter is personally defiling and it is territorially defiling to, your, uh, to the land in which you live. The land has become defiled. Therefore I've brought its punishment upon it. Okay? It's, it's defilement. It's not plastic straws in the oceans. It's not, uh, it's not oil and you know, it's not landfills. It's not what the, the normal things that people today are all worked up about pollution, right? The real pollution, and I'm not saying I'm not approving, I'm not pro-pollution, but what I'm saying is what the Bible describes as pollution is the defilement of a land that's brought about through innocent blood or through fornication. Okay? I guess the third one would then be idolatry. And America is, is specializing in all three. And so how polluted is our land? It's ready to vomit. No question in my mind. And so um, you read through these verses here and why is it that the Canaanites have lost their land? The land will spew you out should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which has been there before you. So the reason why this land was available for God to give to you is because it was vomiting the people that had it before you. I believe the the, uh, Western Hemisphere was vomiting its inhabitants when uh, the European discoveries started bringing waves of migration into the Western Hemisphere. The land was already vomiting the, the uh, 
the, the child sacrifice, the cannibalism, the, the rampant fornication that was, was happening in both North and South America. All right. So don't copy what they were doing or the land is going to vomit you. And it ends with, again, I am the Lord your God. Just in case you forgot, I am the Lord your God. All right. Chapter 19 then, in two minutes. <laughs> All right. It's a broad chapter taking the issue of holiness and applying it to a variety of circumstances in the Old Testament believer's redeemed way of life. Okay? Sometimes I call it the Christian way of life, but because it's in the Old Testament, uh, people don't like me calling it the Christian way of life because it's before Acts chapter 2. Okay, fine. We have our Christian way of life as part of the dispensation of the church. They had an Old Testament redeemed way of life, and, uh, and they were to be holy. They were absolutely to be holy. Beginning at home from the youngest of ages. And again, we have this phrase, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God, occurring repeatedly, repeatedly throughout this chapter. We thought we saw it a lot in chapter 18. It comes back even more now in chapter 19. So reverencing your father and your mother, not turning to idols, um, observing the Sabbath, And then sundry laws. All right. The Lord established a variety of commandments with respect to a well-functioning society. And in verses 9 through 16, you have these principles here. And these are, these are amazing. You know what? I want to pick up with this. Because we got point three and then four, five, six, seven. Yeah, goodness. All right. My wife does tell me it's not the end of the world on a Tuesday night if we go a few minutes over. Anyway, a variety of commandments with respect to a well-functioning society. When you think about the Ten Commandments, when you think about Exodus chapter 20, those are kind of individually focused. Every believer is accountable. Don't murder, don't steal, don't, you know, the, the Ten Commandments there on a personal basis. But in this chapter, these commands are being described in a way that's, that's really crafting a, a, a society that functions well. The principle for the needy and the stranger to work for their food in verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. This is a wonderful pattern. So when you're reaping your harvest and the pattern of how you reap that, leaving those corners available for the poor and the needy so they can go and reap and feed themselves through their own work. Same thing with the gleanings. You shall not steal nor deal falsely nor lie to one another. Yeah, all of these things. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. When he finishes his day, pay him at the end of the work day. Don't hold it overnight. Do not curse a deaf man or place a stumbling block before the blind. And this is thousands of years before the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? That in under the, the principles of, of the Lord's uh, theocracy, I'm not going to victimize the, the disabled. What are you doing? Do no injustice in judgment, not partial to the poor, nor deferring to the great. You can pervert justice either way. 
not to be a slanderer. Oh, this is good stuff. Don't take vengeance. All right, well, I'll decide between now and tomorrow night if I'm going to hit more of this some more. Otherwise, we'll just have to let it go. Yeah, there's some sorcery issues there. Yeah, oh, this is the chapter that talks about tattoos. <laughs> Church scandal. All right, well, we'll pick up on this tomorrow night. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for truth. I thank you for the privilege we have to study to show ourselves approved. And of course, Father, we're not in the Old Testament. We're not subject to Mosaic law. But these uh, standards are very clearly um, patterns that we can emulate, we can copy. And Father, we realize that uh, so much of this is grounded in your very existence, the unchanging absolute standard of your righteousness. So I pray that we are humble before this material. I pray that we see it for what it is. And Father, you're not just surrounding us with a bunch of rules so that you're taking away all our fun and keeping us from having fun. Father, you are blessing us with these boundaries. The boundaries are there for our blessing. And I pray, Father, rather than chafing against the restrictions, we we would rather just celebrate your grace provision and thank you for providing the abundant blessings you supply. So, Father, we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.